You're listening to The Itch, a podcast exploring all things allergy, asthma, and immunology. I'm your co-host, Courtney, a real-life allergy, asthma, and eczema girl. And I'm your second host, Dr. Payal Gupta, a board-certified allergy, asthma, and immunology doctor. Courtney and I hope to balance each other out so that we get you all the information that you want and need about allergies, asthma, and immunology. As it always seems to go, we put together a deep dive episode intending for it to be one, and by the end, we need to break it into two. This means today is part one of two about allergic conjunctivitis and allergic rhinitis, also known as allergies of the eyes and nose. These are two of the most common types of allergies affecting individuals, and we're gonna take a deep dive into what they are, think environmental allergies, their symptoms, if you're predisposed to getting allergies of the eyes and nose, and how they're diagnosed. Our next part will be about the treatments of allergies and eyes and nose, so you can stay tuned for that. Now let's get into it. Today we are talking about allergies, but not food allergies. We're talking about allergies of the eyes or nose, also known as allergic rhinitis and allergic conjunctivitis. Both are the most common conditions that affect allergy sufferers. They are both extremely common. As we know, millions of people are affected by these conditions and recent data actually suggests that allergic rhinitis alone affects 10 to 30% of adults and up to 40% of children in the United States. And it also has a huge economic impact. It accounts for 2.5% of all clinician visits, about 2 million lost school days for children, and 6 million lost work days a year for adults. So it really does impact people in a big way, both physically and financially. And then allergic conjunctivitis is also widespread and occurs in up to 20% of the population. Well, that's actually a huge amount of people who suffer from both of these. So do you think that most people just have one or do they have both types of these allergies? While some patients come in with one of these conditions, it's not uncommon to see people affected by both or different at different times. They might just have nasal symptoms. At different times, they might have both. Different times, they might just have eye symptoms. So it's really variable, but approximately 60% of allergic rhinitis sufferers also suffer from allergic conjunctivitis. Okay, yeah, I'm one of those 60% and it's definitely changed different points in my life. It's nose, eye nose and eyes, depending on where I am geographically. So let's get into the nitty gritty about allergies of the eyes and nose. How do you define allergic rhinitis, nose, and allergic conjunctivitis, eyes? Well, that's a good start. Allergic rhinitis affects the nose and essentially when the inside of the nose gets any of those allergens that people are allergic to, environmental allergens like animals, pollen, dust mites, cockroaches, and mold, for example, those allergens will trigger an inappropriate response in the nasal tissues and cause inflammation and swelling. And that's due to the release of histamine for people with allergies. So as we remember, when we have allergies, it's a type 2 hypersensitivity reaction, meaning that it's mediated by that IgE. And so going into the science, the antigen or the allergen that the person 
person is allergic to binds to the IgE, which as we know from our other talks, causes the mast cells to release histamine. And then the histamine acts locally in that area, which is different to food allergies where it can trigger a systemic reaction. With allergies caused by environmental triggers, we see more of a local inflammatory response of the nose with allergic rhinitis, of the eyes for allergic conjunctivitis, of the lungs, for example, with asthma, or the skin with eczema. So the important thing to remember is that the reaction is not anaphylactic in this situation, but it's more local. By that, do you mean that there's no throat closing, blood pressure change, and other symptoms of anaphylaxis? Because I do know that you can have a severe asthma attack, which might be caused by an allergen, which would lead to hospitalization. So uh, can you explain that a little bit more? Right, exactly. So environmental allergies, when they affect some Someone who has asthma can cause difficulty breathing, of course, and can cause hospitalization. That's more because it's affecting the lungs in particular. And when the lungs are affected, that leads to difficulty breathing and wheezing and coughing and can be so bad and so urgent where you do need to go to the hospital to get treatment to reduce that inflammation in your airways. So it can be dangerous and it can lead to hospitalization, but you're absolutely right. It doesn't cause that throat closing, that immediate throat closing, which can lead to death or the blood pressure drop in anaphylaxis, which can also be very, very life-threatening. And so with asthma, it's usually more progressive and asthma can lead to death. And as we've discussed previously, 10 people in the U.S. die of asthma a day. So it's not a benign condition. And if it's not managed appropriately, it can lead to death. So that's always important to remember. And it's always important to remember that an environmental allergen can be a trigger of an asthma attack. I have one more question, and I hope this doesn't make it all super confusing. But sometimes in the spring, I also get an itchy throat when the pollen count is really high. So I just want to know if that would be something that could potentially be like the closing of the throat that you would associate with anaphylaxis. So allergies can cause throat itching and that irritation in the throat, but it doesn't cause that severe constriction or inflammation like you would have with anaphylaxis related to food allergies. Environmental allergies in this case do not cause throat closing that can lead to anaphylactic symptoms and death. So again, environmental allergies can cause symptoms of the eyes, the nose, the skin, or the lungs. So it really depends on what part of the body they affect for that particular person. I know for myself and for you, we have all four of those body parts affected. And sometimes when I'm around a cat, it causes just my eyes to itch. Sometimes when I'm around a cat, it causes my eyes to itch. And for my asthma to act up, sometimes I get eczema too. So it really just depends on the amount of exposure, what kind of exposure, and how your symptoms were even before you went in. So what I mean by that is if your asthma is already not controlled and you're already coughing and wheezing because let's say you're sick with a viral infection and then you go to someone's house with a cat, more than likely your asthma is going to get a lot worse and it's going to be triggered more than if you had gone in and your asthma was controlled. So that's another reason why it's really important to keep your asthma in particular as controlled as possible so that when you are triggered by an allergen or a cold, your asthma doesn't get to the point of needing hospitalization and needing that urgent attention. And 
Another example is if I'm outside and there's grass pollen, which I'm allergic to, but I'm not sitting in the grass, my skin might not react, but I still might get reactions of my eyes and nose because the pollen is floating around and getting into my eyes and nose. And that's really what causes the environmental allergies to act up is for those allergens to get into those tissues and then the histamine reaction to start up, which causes the inflammation and the itching and the redness. Let's outline the symptoms for other people who still aren't sure what's going on with their systems and who think they might have allergies of the eyes or nose. Typically for allergic rhinitis, people have nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and also itching of the nose. Patients with allergic conjunctivitis usually have itchy red eyes, and then also they can be really teary and watery. And some may also have eyelid swelling associated with those symptoms. When it comes to certain allergies, I've heard the term seasonal and perennial. Can you explain the differences of what those are? So seasonal allergy sufferers are those that typically get affected during one or more seasons every year. And it's typically caused by more traditional outdoor allergens like tree pollen, weed pollen, grass pollen, which have a seasonal pattern to them. So tree allergies, as we've discussed previously, are caused by tree pollen, which is released in the springtime. Grass allergies occur in the summertime with grass pollen and weed allergies typically affect people in the fall. So these are all basic timelines, but every area in the country or around the world has its own pattern. And there are some states in the U.S., for example, where the pollen is released for longer amounts of time compared to other states. I really suggest using a pollen tracker, which can be really helpful. If you just Google pollen count and then put your region in, usually you can find a good helpful resource. And we can actually put one up on our website also, along with the blog post for this episode. And then perennial or year-round sufferers are affected more by indoor allergens, such as dust mites, molds, and animal allergens, because these allergens are really year-round. Dust mites are present in the summer, winter, spring, fall, all the time. They're in our environment. I think we've talked before about what dust mites are, but they're little mites that live off of the flaking of our skin. So they're most commonly found in our bedding and our pillows and things like that. So washing the pillows and doing all of those kind of measures really helps. And we're actually allergic to their poop and not to the dust mite themselves. So again, they're present all year round. But interestingly, they sometimes do have a variation with season because the more humidity there is in the environment, the more they thrive. So that's just something else to remember. Same thing with mold. Molds are affected by the humidity level. So if you have a mold problem in your home or if you're allergic to outdoor molds, there are certain seasons where molds might be worse. But in general, all of these triggers can be more of a year round. And same thing with animals. Obviously, when you have an animal, you don't get rid of it during certain times of the year. You live with it all year round. So that's what seasonal and perennial means. My husband and I both actually have seasonal and perennial allergies. We have a combination of different pollens and grasses in my household. 
and my husband and I don't seem to have the same ones. So during spring and summer, it's like a ping pong game of who's going to be sneezing more, who's going to need more tissues. So it's always kind of funny because we know that one ends and one begins for one of us. That being said, I'm wondering if there's any important risk factor that might predispose someone to developing allergic rhinitis or allergic conjunctivitis. Yes. So we've talked about family history with allergic disease. So if your mom or dad have an allergic condition or remember the term atopic, if they're atopic or allergic, you are at higher risk of also being allergic. Also, some interesting risk factors for allergic rhinitis from research studies shows that male sex might increase your chances of being allergic, being the firstborn child, birth during pollen season, maternal exposure to smoking, early use of antibiotics, and exposure to indoor allergens like dust mite might increase a person's chance of having allergic rhinitis. Similarly, though, with allergic conjunctivitis, a history of atopy has been proven to be a risk factor for the development of the disease. But I'm assuming all of the other things just haven't been studied for conjunctivitis, but would also apply. Oh, gosh, our poor babies are doomed. (laughs) So if people have any of these risk factors, is anything they can do to prevent these diseases from developing in their babies? Well, according to that list, one of the best things to do is definitely not to smoke when you're pregnant or be in a household with smokers. And then the other risk factors are obviously harder to control, like the timing of the birth. And obviously, you can control the amount of dust mites that are in your environment and be extra careful, which might help. One other important thing to mention is that smoking exposure also increases the likelihood of developing asthma in a child. So I just want to mention all of those things associated with smoking. Yeah, I think that we know enough bad crap happens when you smoke, so just don't do it. But curious, and if someone really just needs an extra little hit, why is it linked to allergic rhinitis and asthma? Do you know? Yeah, so I mean, unfortunately, the exact mechanism is unclear, but it's thought that the tobacco smoke, which has hundreds of dangerous chemicals, causes a dysregulation of the immune system and also some damage to the respiratory tract. And of course, that's our first line of defense in the lungs. It just leads us to be susceptible to the direct toxic activity of the chemicals in the tobacco smoke. So essentially, just a lifetime rule of no smoking is the best policy. And we learn more and more about how harmful this horrible habit is, even for someone that is just living around it, right? So you don't even actually have to be smoking, but just being in a household with smokers is very detrimental to someone's health. So if it's a husband and wife and the husband smokes, you've got to stop smoking too. (laughs) Just do it. It's good for you anyways. Absolutely. And even if you don't smoke in the house, technically, even just the smoke on clothes can cause irritation. And that smell in itself has chemicals cause irritation and damage. So even 
oh, I smoke outside or whatever, it's it's not enough. It's just best to really try hard to stop smoking, even though, again, I always like to be realistic. It is a very, very hard habit to stop, but it's not impossible and it's totally feasible and people do it all the time. So if you're motivated, you should absolutely talk to your doctor because there's so many different ways that they can help you stop smoking. Um, and actually, because I work so much with the American Lung Association, the American Lung Association has some awesome resources on their website that we'll also link to so that if there's anyone that's listening that gets motivated to stop smoking, they can link to those helpful resources. A lot of them are free too. So coming back to allergic rhinitis and allergic conjunctivitis, since we were talking about babies, when do babies start to show symptoms of allergic rhinitis and allergic conjunctivitis? Both of those conditions typically require a few years of allergen exposure to develop. So it's uncommon in children under the age of two years old. If a very young child appears to have persistent nasal symptoms, we should definitely be considering other conditions and not just allergic conditions in that case. And can you develop allergies of the eyes and nose at any point in your lifetime or does it typically show up when you're a kid? You can actually develop symptoms at any point in your life. And I think I have had symptoms personally since I was very little, but that's not always the case. Now, if someone thinks that they have allergic conjunctivitis or allergic rhinitis, how would you go about diagnosing that? Yeah, great question. So as with most medical conditions, the most important way that we as allergists or as doctors diagnose allergic rhinitis and conjunctivitis is with a thorough history. So I become suspicious of allergies of the nose and eyes if a person comes in with typical symptoms of the sneezing, the runny nose, the itchy, watery eyes. And so if someone, for example, just got a cat and then starts to have these symptoms, then we start questioning, is it a cat allergy? And the way to see if it really is the cat that's causing the symptoms. And surprisingly, sometimes people do get a pet and then they start having symptoms and they think it must be the pet and we don't find an allergy. So it is really important to do the testing before you get nervous and get rid of your cat. There's just so many variables that can cause allergies. And so in order to really make sure that that's what's causing it, a good way to figure that out is by doing skin prick testing or blood testing for that IgE that we've talked about before to see what environmental allergen the person's allergic to or not allergic to. It sounds like it's very similar to food allergy. Is there anything else beyond testing that you would look at? So we always examine patients when they come in to the office and sometimes they have that picture perfect look to them where they have the runny nose in the office. They're doing something called an allergic salute, which means that they're rubbing their nose with the palm or the back of their hand. And it's often done unintentionally. And when people do that, Often enough, they actually get a horizontal line across their nose. That's a telltale sign of somebody having allergies of their nose. And then, you know, when looking in their nose, I can see a lot of drainage. So the inside of their nose, which has this tissue called a turbinate, almost has a bluish discoloration with allergies. We call it a blue and boggy look to the turbinates or those tissues in the nose because they're so swollen from all of that histamine release. 
face. And again, that clear kind of mucus drainage that we can also see at the back of the throat. And so, yeah, th- those are some of the signs that we can see on, on exam. And also one other thing that I really like to mention is something called an allergic shiner. And what that is are the dark circles that people can get under their eyes. And that's really caused by the blood vessels underneath the eyes not being able to drain properly because they get blocked by those enlarged tissues inside the nose or those turbinates. And when those blood vessels can't drain properly and the skin underneath the eyes is pretty thin, you can see that kind of bluish discoloration, which is the blood pooling underneath the eyes. So as we treat the nose, the eyes actually look better. So sometimes that's a motivator for people because one of the things that they hate the most are those allergic shiners because people feel like they make them look tired, make them look less beautiful. And so that can sometimes be a motivator for people to stay on their medications and especially use the nasal sprays more diligently. That's super interesting. I always thought I was just like really, really tired during the spring, but it's always a little bit puffy too under the Mm -hmm. eyes and that must be what's going on. Crazy. So what about allergic conjunctivitis? Right. So with allergic conjunctivitis, the white part of the eyes will be red because the blood vessels are more visible and irritated and inflamed. And the person might wake up with a stringy, clear discharge that you can almost pull out of your eye. And the eyes can sometimes also look swollen from all the rubbing because a lot of people usually at night without even knowing it are rubbing their eyes or definitely children during the night and day rub their eyes constantly. And actually, the more you rub your eyes, the more it can sometimes release the histamine, just like with eczema. The more you kind of touch your skin and rub your skin, it makes the eczema worse. The more you rub, the more you stimulate those tissues and that irritation, the more it's going to lead to symptoms. Would that also include like the more you blow your nose? No, not necessarily the more you blow your nose. It's really the rubbing and the irritation caused by the rubbing. And obviously blowing your nose frequently could cause nosebleeds because when you blow really hard, that can lead to the blood vessels in the nose getting irritated and nosebleeds frequently. So a lot of people with allergies of the nose can have nosebleeds. So now someone's coming and they've taken a history and it sounds like allergic rhinitis or allergic conjunctivitis and after an exam that shows some of these signs is that all you need to make a diagnosis? Well, as we discussed, we can make a clinical diagnosis by the history and exam findings, but testing really does help to understand all the different factors that might be causing the reaction. So especially if the symptoms have been going on for a while or if it's very sudden new onset with a new pet, I think that just getting a clear answer as to what is causing the symptoms is helpful. And then we can also work on environmental control measures once we know exactly what's causing the symptoms. And we can talk about other treatment options like allergy immunotherapy. And would those tests then be a skin prick or a blood test? And which one would you use and which one's better for diagnosing? Yep. Either blood testing or skin testing can figure out what you're allergic to. And typically, skin testing is most sensitive. 
They also say it's the most cost-effective method. However, getting a blood IgE level can be very helpful in patients that can't tolerate skin testing, for example, which is usually done on the forearms, sometimes done on the back. Definitely in smaller children, it's done on the back so that they can't touch it and rub it because you have to leave the skin testing on for 15 minutes, as we've discussed previously. They have really severe eczema, then that's one reason where they might not be able to do the skin testing. Or patients that aren't able to come off of their antihistamine. So as we know, with skin prick testing, you cannot be on an antihistamine for at least 48 hours. And some people say at least 72 hours because it blocks the reaction that we're looking for. Also with environmental testing, there is one other type of skin tests. So we can do the skin prick test, but there's also something called an intradermal test. And an intradermal test is where we inject the allergen a little bit deeper under the skin to see if it causes a reaction. We don't do this for food allergies because it could lead to systemic reaction, but with environmental allergies, it is safe to do. But we always have to start with the skin prick test. If we start with an intradermal test, which again, injects it at a little bit higher level, even with environmental allergens, if the person's highly allergic, you could cause a systemic reaction if you're injecting things that people are allergic to. So we start with the skin prick test. If the skin prick test is, for example, negative to a cat, but the person just got a cat, then sometimes I'll go to the intradermal test to make sure that they're truly not allergic and that they just don't need a higher exposure to react. I understand that an intradermal test isn't something you would use with food allergy, but is it something that you would typically always use with environmental allergies? Every doctor is different in the way that they use intradermal testing. For me, I use it when I definitely use it when I'm starting someone on immunotherapy. And the reason is, is because I want to include every little thing that the person's sensitive to. So even things that they need a little bit higher exposure to. I'd like to include it in their immunotherapy regimen. And I will also use intradermal testing for things that don't make sense. For example, if somebody just got a cat, they start having symptoms, their skin prick test is negative, then I'll go to the intradermal test just to make sure that they're truly not allergic. So those are the two situations for me that I definitely do intradermal testing. I always offer it to somebody. So if they have completely negative skin prick test and they feel like this just doesn't make sense for them. I do offer for them to do the intradermal test just to make sure that there isn't something that is potentially positive, but just at higher concentrations. Okay. That's really interesting to know. We haven't really covered intradermal tests on this podcast, so it's kind of cool to hear about that. Now, you mentioned that someone would ask for intradermal tests if their test results come back negative. What if someone is showing the symptoms of allergic rhinitis or conjunctivitis or both, and you've examined them and it looks like they do have something like that, but all of their tests come back negative? Is there or are there any conditions that would look very similar? Absolutely. So... 
you know, starting with allergic rhinitis, there's a number of conditions which look similar. So if someone comes in with all the symptoms, but the tests are negative, then we call that non-allergic rhinitis, which literally means congestion of the nose, runny nose that's not caused by allergies. And patients that suffer from this tend to have year-round symptoms with less itching and less sneezing compared to people with allergic rhinitis. And oftentimes their symptoms, when you when you ask them more history, are associated with changes in temperature, humidity, certain odors, or even alcohol. And that's not to say that people with allergies can't have those same triggers also, but the people with non-allergic rhinitis tend to have those triggers more often. Is non-allergic rhinitis a standalone diagnosis or is it a symptom of something else? So it's what I would call a diagnosis of exclusion. And what that means is that once we've excluded all of the other causes of congestion or runny nose, then we turn to this diagnosis. So it can also be used as a category of a diagnosis, meaning that if someone has, for example, only a runny nose with changes in temperature, that can also be called vasomotor rhinitis, which is a form of non-allergic rhinitis. So it's almost like a category of a condition. So there's allergic rhinitis and then there's non-allergic rhinitis. And within non-allergic rhinitis, there are other diagnoses underneath that. But I think that that's a long list that we don't need to get into. But one of the more common ones, like I mentioned, was this change in temperature, which is called vasomotor rhinitis. So are there any other conditions that may look like allergic rhinitis? Yes. Other important things to look out for are upper respiratory infections, like a cold. Some people have more frequent colds. Maybe they have a child at home that's in daycare and they keep getting sick with viral infections or have sinus issues that don't allow proper drainage of the mucus. And that can lead to a feeling of always being congested. And that's caused by an anatomical issue in their sinuses. And so for a lot of those patients, I also will refer them to my ear, nose, and throat colleagues because they're able to do what we call a scope and really look inside the nose and check the sinus. And sometimes those patients will also get a CT scan, especially if they're frequently on antibiotics. Another diagnosis is rhinitis. During pregnancy, your nose can get swollen and the tissues inside your nose can become leaky and swollen and uncomfortable, just like they can with allergic rhinitis. So that's one thing to consider if you're pregnant and all of a sudden you get a lot of congestion. But another thing to remember with pregnancy is that a third of people's allergies can get worse. A third of people's allergies can get better. And a third of people's allergies stay the same during pregnancy. So that's another rule to remember. It's a rule of thirds with asthma and with allergies of the eyes and nose. Lastly, I'd like to mention nasal polyps. So nasal polyps is when the inside of your nose has this tissue that forms and blocks the nasal passages. And people get very clogged and sometimes it can start suddenly. And some believe that allergies can be the irritant that causes the polyps to form. So this extra tissue that forms within the nose 
nose can develop because of the irritation from allergies. So when a patient comes in with congestion, we always need to look inside of their nose. And if we see polyps, then we should definitely do environmental allergy testing to see if allergies might be playing a role in their polyps. For nasal polyps, sometimes surgery is required. And Dupixin, it's also been approved for nasal polyp patients. If they do have allergies of the nose, some people believe that putting them on allergy immunotherapy, it can be shots or it can be the sub lingual form can also help prevent the formation of the polyps over time. How common are nasal polyps? Yeah, so like I said, they should always be looked for when people are congested or have congestion, especially that seems to worsen quickly. I would say in my practice, I see it fairly often because I work with ear, nose, and throat doctors who look for nasal polyps and do a more thorough exam because they scope people. But as far as how common they are, there really isn't a number like 20% of patients or something that I could find for nasal polyps. And lastly, I I also want to mention that a runny nose can also sometimes be the result of medications. One of the medications that I definitely want to mention is oxymetazoline, and that's branded in the U.S. as Afrin, but there's also other forms of it that I've seen, but I'm just mentioning Afrin because I think a lot of people have heard of that. And this is actually sold over the counter, which I have a, I don't understand how it became an over-the-counter medication because although it can give people immediate relief, it does that because it constricts the tissues and the blood vessels in the nose. And it's very dangerous, actually, because if it's used often, it can cause what we call rebound congestion, which means that because it's constricting the blood vessels and the tissues in the nose, the body gets confused as to why, you know, why the nose isn't getting enough oxygen to the tissues because it's constricting the blood vessels. And so the brain tells the body to dilate those vessels and dilate the nasal tissues so that the oxygen can get there and the blood flow can get there. In theory, we technically can't do anything until that brain-body connection stops. And the only way to do that is by coming off of the afferent completely and staying off of it for a little while. Sometimes because people get addicted to that sensation of not feeling congested, it's really hard for people to come off of it at times. And so it can become this like kind of vicious cycle. So just something to, important to remember I that Afrin is dangerous. That particular ingredient, we'll write that in our show notes also, is not safe. And really, you only want to use it for a maximum of one to two days so that you don't get that negative side effect. If you do come off it, it things will eventually come back to normal. Yes, eventually over time, they will return to normal. And that time frame kind of varies. And it really depends on how long the person's been using the Afrin too. So sometimes it can just take longer if the person's been on it for a long time. And other medications that may cause a runny nose include oral contraceptive pills like birth control, antihypertensive, so medications for blood pressure, the non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs like aspirin can cause people to feel congestion sometimes. And some psychiatric medications can cause congestion. And there's many others, but those are the big categories. And again, with drug-induced 
runny nose, usually the symptoms will resolve once you stop using the medication. How about allergic conjunctivitis? Is there any condition or conditions that look like it? Yes. So with allergic conjunctivitis, it's important to rule out other conditions if the testing is negative. I think the most important things to rule out are a viral or bacterial conjunctivitis, which means a virus or a bacteria that's affecting the eyes and causing them to be red and irritated and swollen, or a medication that can induce those similar symptoms because those conditions can be easily treated. There's also dry eye, which is a condition of the eye that can look a lot like allergic conjunctivitis. Even though allergies of the eyes typically cause tearing, Dry eye can cause that itchy redness. Some people don't get the tearing. And so sometimes the dry eye symptoms can be mixed up with allergies of the eyes. And then, of course, there's a lot of other eye conditions that could cause redness and irritation of the eyes, but we won't go into those. But those are some of the the main ones that we want to rule out if it's not related to allergies, if all the testing is negative. And then ultimately, I always refer patients with eye symptoms that don't don't look like classic allergies of the eyes to my colleagues that are eye doctors because the eyes obviously, like every other part of the body, are so important, but we definitely don't want to miss anything serious in the eyes. Yeah, you definitely don't want to mess with the eyes. That's it for now, folks. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to stay tuned because we will be releasing allergies of the eyes and nose and their treatments very soon. for listening to today's episode. Remember that all information you hear today is for informational purposes only and are not intended to serve as a substitute for the consultation, diagnosis, and or medical treatment of a qualified physician or healthcare provider. And also don't forget to subscribe to our podcast. And if you have a second, help spread the word by rating our podcast and sharing with your friends and family who might also be interested in learning more about allergies, asthma, and immunology. You can always stay up to date by checking out our Instagram, The Itch Podcast, where you can leave questions you are itching to know, or check out our website, which is www.itchpodcast.com, which contains more information about the subjects we covered in today's episode and every episode. Until next time, have a fabulous week.